0: In like what our country can do for persecution uh which is a very real thing um these guys over in uh china the felon gong followers is uh basically uh kind of the idea like um like buddhism of individuality and finding yourself centering yourself um a lot of meditation involved uh very peaceful like following and practice but um uh, it's in- Practiced over a hundred countries worldwide, um, and in 90, 99, I was gonna say ninety six, nineteen ninety nine, um, the uh, Chinese government looked to eradicate the uh, non traditional um, exercise and uh, and w- went against the uh, state's government, uh, state's um, religion, and like philosophical like uh, views, and. I see a lot of people like um, in America. You know, we uh, put someone in office that's looking at. Um, you know, he's saying registering Muslims that are coming into the country. Um, a lot of people that are uh, older Japanese American have parents that went through the uh, Japanese uh, uh, internment camps. Um, are seeing like saying like you know a lot of the same rhetoric that's going around then, and. Um, when we look at this going into these uh, a peaceful um, religion in China, or not even a religion of practice in China. You know, it's being persecuted like that because it goes against the grain of the uh, state's religion. Um, look at what we have here. You know, we if we don't, if you don't understand that we're a Christian-run country, then you're very uh, naive to the fact that, uh, that we have not had a non-Christian um, in the uh, White House since the beginning of the country. Um, We've had the Bush administration and this past Trump administration are going into the uh, White House and strong Christian um, um, platforms, and you know we got to make sure that we stand up for the people like uh, that are in this position of being persecuted, um, whether it be our Muslim brothers, um, is it Latin Americans? You know, if it's uh, the blacks in America, if we got to stand up like. Um, and actually stand up and, with, and draw this back to what um the idea with the uh safety pin the reason i brought that up is to uh show it's for this time it's something that's very very good idea and we just got to as a culture of people who um want to make change and don't agree with things like to really stand behind make sure that people aren't persecuted like that um
1: it is a cool statement yeah it is a cool statement
0: and it's just this it's the legs behind it like i said earlier um it's if it's not and do you do you worry about if people are getting is this political movement a fashion statement does it have legs behind it and i think that's what happened why there's 95 percent percentage that clinton was going to win to now like we saw what the election was like the legs behind the statements that we're making um you know are we really going out and doing what we're saying we're gonna do is the same thing the safety pin statement are we gonna actually when it comes like time to put the money on the table you stand behind people do you actually get up and say something um or is it a fashion statement so it's right. something that's super important that we need we need to stand up for people it's a land of the free it's a melting pot um our uh, future president's wife was actually an immigrant into this country so um, you know we gotta 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 support those uh, those mixed nationality families that Steve Jobs somehow find Steve Jobs is. father yeah
1: a Syrian immigrant right <coughs> and I mean how how influential Apple the biggest company in the world it surpassed ExxonMobil as the biggest it's, company a few years ago you know what started it's, by a Syrian immigrant you know right? it's something
0: that <laughs> says a lot to what immigrants the things that the, re, the reason that america is the country that's modernized the world that's you know the strongest like i mean when people say it's the best country in the world that's why people come here um but it's what people bring here and it's the steve job's father to make sure a job was always done right he said when i make cabinets i make the back of the door and the back and the things people won't see is true and sight is the front um, because that's the pride of the work and shit I put into it, and that's the quality I do, um, and that's a big thing that guided Steve into like um, the quality and the build and doing everything in the back end, right? That's why um, Apple OS is always so in the back. That's why the user experience for all that's so nice is because the details are always shored up, and the little things that could be overlooked, they're like taken care of, and um, and it's. A first-generation immigrant that came to this country that set a mentality into his son that made the one of the cornerstones of a uh, yeah, like you said, one of the strongest uh, companies in the world. That you know, first-world countries don't have don't bring in as much revenue as that company does. So it's the little Definitely. things that the uh, yeah, it's what the people coming to this country bring, and it's not it's not money, it's not it's. People and their stories and the things that go into like making up that whole experience.
1: I think so. I think there is definitely strength in diversity, you know, and uh, I think that some some people. I know that it's de- it's definitely a fact that some people feel feel better where things are are uh, a little more uh, homogenous. Yeah. <laughs> right <clears throat> but um it's, it's diversity it's is easy is, is, and comfortable. it's great right
0: like you Definitely. don't want to rattle things up you don't want to <laughs> rattle the cage but I mean that's how you get passed over that's that was when that's what happens to the big cultures that you know don't want to you don't want to change the times you don't want to you know modernize uh you know that's going to be the next thing that if we don't keep up uh you know, third world countries are coming up because they're able to build infrastructure now to be extremely, like, uh, uh, green in their infrastructure. They're coming out with, uh, they're building infrastructures now that are going to be able to efficiently run, um, that aren't going to be dependent on oil and coal, the things that uh, are going to be, you know, self-sufficient, you're not going to have to worry. They're going to spend a lot of their money bringing in these more expensive, like things that are going to, like coal and oil, and, you know, as things get depleted, the gonna kind of cost of those are going to go up. And these countries that are third world now setting themselves up with a, uh, by building a modern infrastructure to put themselves in a advantage in the future. That, um that you see Germany, you see, I think there's about 12 countries that are in Europe that are pledging to be uh, and on track to be totally green by, I think, like 2020 or something like that. Um,
1: not if some people can help it <laughs> yeah
0: because um, there's no clean shale and coal and like all that um, it's like the art of statistics is something anything you can, you can always spin that to uh, support your argument and the realistic thing is digging death up out of the ground and burning it isn't going to there's no there's no uh going forward with that of like building building on top of death and uh, It's you're burning you're burning bones and <laughs> uh, the past you're ripping it up from the soil and you expect things to like you know if you get clean living energies the sun the ocean the um, the winds i mean things that are clean and alive and moving like these are energies and stuff that are going to be able to support countries that uh you know it's that's. These are one of the things that can potentially get the America like left in, left in the dust, in the future.
1: Definitely. This has been a public service announcement.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> from the mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> On Saturdays from four to six, That's and uh, we'll be back.
0: That's right.
2: called angels and visitation conflicting interpretations of
3: ain't scurvy, shit face McRat. <laughs>
4: Good evening there, my friends here at dot and Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground
5: got it in we to change reality. To change reality. That was uh, Sacred Red. That was um, Sea Star from the Big Island.
3: Oh, so beautiful. She said that she got it in me to change reality. And I'll just say, we got it within we to change reality. And that's what we're about here.
5: That's right. Happy Friday. This is the Common Thread Collective here at Mutiny MutinyRadio.fm.
3: And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to everybody. Peace. I want to say happy fr- Freya's Day. And uh, uh, if people don't know, I'm about to... Uh, I'm about to take off, Uh, uh, Val. I'm about to go off on my on my on my North American tour. Yep. But you'll be holding it down. I will.
5: I will, and you'll be our far out, far flung correspondent calling in on Fridays. Every Friday,
3: I'll call in with the phone in my hand. Yep. I'm talking about Missoula. Minneapolis, points in between, New York City, and then before we get off, off, uh, off we we'll have to look at, off off the off grid, off the grid, and the Rainbow Gathering and the Green Mountains of Vermont, all of that, uh, and then afterwards we're, we're uh, afterwards we're going down. To uh, Philadelphia with Felipe, hopefully getting a caravan together and, uh, and, uh, and feeding the people. And I'm calling it this—the first time you hear it on this station. I'm calling it Occupy Philly, Occupy Liberty during the Democratic Convention, and inviting the Bernie delegates. Be sure to come on. Don't give up. Come on through. I hope Bernie will issue a huge manifesto saying, "All your delegates. There's hundreds of Bernie delegates who have never done this before. Were elected." Uh, outside of the political structure. He's not a Democrat, remember? He's a Democratic Socialist. And I hope they come to town, and we would be occupying. And that's a dream I have. Well, may the dreams come true. Well, that's to me, too. It's a question of saying uh, planet on the planet, to a degree. Well, anyway, we got Ubi.
5: We do have Ubi. We're going to play, because uh, even when things get a little just out of hand, Ubi lets us know, don't worry so much. Everything's Everything's gonna be be all all right. Thank you, Ubi, for letting us know everything is going to be all right. Thanks for listening to the Common Thread Collective here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. I'm here with Diamond Dave, and I'm here with James Zellis, who's our guest interviewer today, um, because we have a a rather esteemed guest, an author and poet and scholar, uh, Mr. Peter Dale Scott. So uh, James Zellis, thanks for being here.
6: Thanks for having me Global Val. Um, I say I'm very excited uh, to be here at the Common Third Collective and to have uh, our guest, who will be in in a moment, hey, Mr. P. Dell Scott. Peter,
3: Peter I'm, I'm definitely here, I'm definitely in a good good situation, uh, James is going to be interviewing you in a bit later, I might have some questions to jump in, and uh, jump in, it's good to hear your voice again. Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm here, I'm looking forward to this. Well, we're doing it. The past shakes hands with the future to the now, right now,
6: take it away, James. Welcome to the Common Third Collective, Mr. Scott. Uh,
7: Welcome. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward
6: to this. Very good. Um, your work was brought to my attention by our poet laureate of the United States Emeritus, Mr. Uh, Robert Hass, who. Uh, wrote an essay uh, d- uh, describing uh, yeah, one of three books he wrote a very unique trilogy Sekulim. Uh the first of those three books is what Mr. Hass uh, wrote it, uh, an essay about and can be found in uh, What Light Can Do and that was your book Coming to Jakarta, I hope you could share with us today some thoughts on that trilogy I understand you have some recent work or a book about the writing of the trilogy, is that correct?
7: Well, yes, well, that book is still in process. The, the poem, uh, Coming to Jakarta, it, it occupied me for a decade in the 1980s. I began, I was acutely depressed in 1980 for a number of reasons which come up in the poem, one of them being the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and I wrote it very quickly, almost on impulse, in about six weeks, and then spent uh, eight years refining it and rewriting it. And the course of that time, um, Bob Hass, uh, I, he and I were both teaching at Cal at that time, and he gave it to, a, a version of it, to this class to read. And uh, then I got some input from the class, and one of the people in the class actually helped me a lot. The occasion for the poem is the massacre in Indonesia in 1965, where still a lot of people in America are not very aware of the fact—I mean, all the devastation being done by ISIS now is is nothing, really, compared to—we don't know how many people were killed. A a low estimate—the lowest estimate is about 250,000. The SAFE estimate is uh, half a million, but a lot of people believe it was more than a million, maybe even as much as two million. And, of course, nothing ISIS has done begins to compare to that. And the targets were, first of all, the the Communist Party in Indonesia, which was the the most westernized uh, party in Indonesia. In a sense, uh, pro- people with Western ideas were the targets of this massacre. And in this case, uh, I believed and had written that the CIA was uh, helping out, and British intelligence, MI6, were helping out. And this just made me feel terrible that uh, there was this massacre, it had happened. And nobody knew about it in America, and that's what uh, led to a kind of—I uh, I thought of it as a breakdown time. I think it was really more like some kind of panic attack. It, 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 the, the attack lasted only 12 hours or so through a night when I couldn't sleep, but I began to write my way out of it. and. Uh, I did a lot of very rapid writing, not knowing where it was going. I didn't know it was going to be a poem about about Jakarta or about Indonesia until I'd written about 20 pages. Anyway, that's the book that caught Bob Haas's attention, other people's attention, too. It's my best-known poem, I think. And, um, and uh, so, yes, he, at the time, he said it was the most important political poem to have been written in the English language for a very long time, so that made me feel better. I went from being very depressed to feeling much better that my depression had led to a product other people liked.
6: As many authors write to heal, this is a poem of healing. It is germane to the conversation. I would, I would argue, as we look at the security state, at the activities yes, of the NSA. I, I
7: felt that it, it very much was a, a, a process of healing for me, uh, but I feel that uh, there's some kind of analogy to the way that uh, nations heal, this has been particularly difficult for Indonesia because what happened as a result of the massacre was the imposition of a political dictatorship, military dictatorship, Um, and the man who came in in 1965 was there until he was ousted for corruption in 1998, And even for a decade after that, the military still ran the country, and you were not allowed to mention the massacre unless you called it the PKI Gestapo. In other words, blaming it on the PKI, which is the Communist Party. The Communist Party did not inaugurate this massacre. They were the victims of it, and they were blamed for it for the—there uh, was a coup attempt, which was, I think, a false flag attempt blamed on the communists. And uh, for so until, I think, 19, 2007 or something, I like think, quite recently, you could go to jail if you didn't—if you mentioned the massacre and didn't blame it on the PKI. And they had a, a whole warehouse full of textbooks that were destroyed— in 2007, because uh, they had failed to do the obligatory thing, blame it on the PKI. So uh, the country now is getting out of that, and there have been two movies Man, an American, Josh Oppenheimer. Both of them nominated for an Oscar, by the way, long feature documentaries. First one, The Act of Killing, <clears throat> the second one, The Look of Silence, And because they were on the internet and the government could do nothing about it, Indonesia is now waking up, so to speak, beginning to talk about this thing, having conferences about it. They're going, I think, it's been decided by the government that they will have some kind of truth and conciliation, reconciliation process. So you can, there has been a great healing and art, in the form of these two movies, uh, played a big role in that act of healing. And if I could b- blow my own horn here, I got an unsolicited email from this Josh Oppenheimer, who I had never met or heard of until then, saying that he had been influenced by my poem and by my prose in making the movies. So. There's, um, you know, that that really makes me feel good. That art can have a good social function. I've, for uh, for twenty years, I thought I'd been totally useless and that my art wasn't affecting anything at all. But I have a better feeling about it now because of Josh Oppenheimer's movies.
3: Uh, well, I'm just going to jump in with one question. I've been reading late, getting to what uh, two archipelagos, the Indonesia. Where massacres took place, and the Philippines. Now, as I know, in the Philippines, the there's been that's what I'm talking about. Before the coming of the uh, the Dutch, and the, the Dutch, and the Spanish, they were blended perfectly. They were blended fine. But uh, but now we have two archipelagos. That's one through uh, through just uh, political boundaries. One is the Philippines. Where they did have those comfort, those discussions, where there was not uh, the kind of massacre. In fact, these discussions did take place between the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, and the and and the government, and they seem to have come to that uh, kind of uh, kind of a truce, a uh, kind of a truce, where the well, two Philippines, Red Philippines, was still and... In trouble.
7: I think, and the man they've just elected in the Philippines. Uh, I, I haven't really researched him, but I've seen allegations that he was. In charge of repressive units that were some people have called death squads, so they're they're not free of violence. But there's nothing nothing like the violence that you had this kind of huge frenzy. It was it it went I think beyond what anyone had originally imagined. The 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 army certainly started the massacring, but. Uh, it it, 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 People weren't berserk, and there were, uh, of course, there were a lot of personal vendettas. If, if you owed money to somebody, the simple thing was to kill them, and so on. But yes, it was uh, the the result of colonialism uh, was was bad in both archipelagos, but uh, eventually much worse in Indonesia.
6: Make the argument or I, I draw the conclusion that coming to Jakarta tells a story of how that action taken was trotted out as a successful trumping of communism and sold as an idea, perhaps, to underwrite the adventure of Vietnam?
7: Yes, it happened at the same time as Vietnam, and uh, one of the analyses of why the Americans wanted to do it. Because they were very keen to have the army go in and take care of the Communist Party, but they knew that the army was frightened of China, and they wanted to put what they called a shield in Vietnam to keep in, to interpose between China and Indonesia. And if you had a big U.S. presence in Vietnam, you didn't need to win a war. You just needed to be there. That's the key, I think, to all these wars, where these hopeless wars we keep on fighting. Afghanistan will never win that one. Uh, Iraq, we're back in. Uh, we're never going to win in any conventional sense. But the presence of U.S. troops is what matters. And in the case of Iraq, it means that the government of Kazakhstan is willing to make contracts with Chevron and Exxon, and uh, not fear Russia, because he's got Russian armies to the north, but now there's an American army to the south. So it's, um, it, it, it doesn't make what sense on one level, it does make sense on another level, and uh, it's imperialism.
6: It looks like the business of war.
7: I was, um, the poem is less, I mean, if you read my poem, it's not going to tell you an enormous amount about what happened in Indonesia, although it it did some things, and I I learned a lot writing the poem and researching that led to certain prose things I wrote, and... uh, one of the consequences, which is kind of amusing, I, I actually got to debate William Colby, who the, was the, at that time the ex-head of the CIA and before that head of the Asia Desk at the time of the massacre. So uh, it, uh, it, 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 it created mire waves among intellectuals and so on. Um, but most of the poem was just... Uh, the feeling of uh, which I think most people have, you know, this is an awful world and we would love to do something about it, but we can't, or we can't seem to get anything done. So it's a a mixture of the personal and the political.
6: You mentioned earlier that a a book, In Progress, is the writing of the, uh, a book about the writing of this trilogy. Can you talk about that?
7: Yes. Well, first of all, I, I did an article for something called uh, the Asia uh, uh, Asia po- uh, Political Journal, uh, in which I just talked about how writing the poem. Well, no, I think I better begin somewhere else. Uh, I I have a, a friend, a former student, but are now a very good friend and helper and colleague, uh, co-author, who uh, loved the poem and. Uh, Persuaded me two years ago to sit down and do some interviews uh, explaining the poem because the poem really needs explanation. And so he interviewed me. There are a total of 22 interviews, each one about half an hour long. And uh, he has asked me matter of fact questions about what's happening in the poem. And that's the core of the book. And originally it was going to be the book. I was just going to transcribe those essays and write a few introductory words, uh, and that would be it. But, you know, being interviewed by him, it took over a year. Um, I thought more and more about the poem, and I realized that the poem had really been very important to me in developing my own political ideas I, I i'm known for talking about deep politics the politics that doesn't get mentioned that the locus of power in a zone that is so hidden that the media the, 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 the mainstream media never write about it and i realized that i had uh, being empowered to develop those ideas by writing the poem. The poem helped my political thinking,